message. Father, Father in heaven, we are so grateful that you are our heavenly Father and that you love us. We want to hear from you this morning. We gather with eager expectation to hear from you because we are so dependent upon you. Do not allow us to leave here the same as when we arrived. Convict us, comfort us. Speak through your word today. Amen. Yeah, something, Bill, you said triggered another thought in me is that that God is more holy than we think he is. And we are more sinful than we think we are. Now, as I've been doing, and you'll see how this kind of ties into the message. As I've been doing, we're working our way through the book of Exodus. And today we are in Exodus chapter 32. Now, and if you're not familiar, this is the chapter about the golden calf. John Calvin, in his Institutes of the Christian Religion, he's talking about man's desire for a tangible deity. And he says man's nature, so to speak, is a perpetual factory of idols. Mankind is constantly creating gods in opposition to God. You know, since the fall of man in Eden, idolatry has been a perpetual problem. It, it really was, if you think about it, idolatry, the entertaining of a false god that led Adam and Eve to disobedience. Satan tempted them to defy the God of all creation by presenting them with an image of a false god. Will he really do this? And since that first sin, humankind has faced the onslaught of the temptation of idolatry. Calvin wrote in a a commentary on the Acts of the Apostles, he said, Every one of us is, even from his mother's womb, expert in inventing idols. So think about it. It's the first two commandments. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image. And as we've been working our way through the book of Exodus, we find ourselves at an interesting place. You see, God had summoned Moses to Mount Sinai on several occasions. And most significantly, when he received the Ten Commandments, which is chapters 20 through 23. And after that, Moses descended to give the books of the covenant to the children of Israel. Uh, He told them about it first. And then he gave them the books. And you may remember their response. All the words that the Lord has spoken to us, we will do. And so they had this declaration of faith and they were off to a good start. Well, Moses was summoned up to the mountain again where he would remain this time for the next 40 days, 40 days and 40 nights. And meanwhile, the people remained at the foot of the mountain with Aaron being in charge in Moses' absence. 
And during this time, you know, God's revealing to Moses his plans for the construction of the tabernacle and all its furnishings, the, uh, as well as the plans for the, for the priesthood. I mean, to me, this was such a glorious period in the history of the nation. God was doing great things and revealing great things while the people responded with a great commitment. And now, in, and if, if chapters 32, 33, and 34 were taken out of, of the book of Exodus, you would have an unbroken flow from basically chapters 25 to 40. Because if, when we get to chapter 35, the theme of the tabernacle continues this time with the record of the tabernacle's construction based on what God had told Moses earlier. But chapters 32 through 34 do exist here. They interrupt the flow of the book. And this interruption was caused by idolatry. And I want to kind of lay a little bit of context and to, to build on this. And this is in reference to the building of the tabernacle. In Exodus 25, the Lord had said to Moses, speak to the people of Israel that, that they take up a contribution, an offering. From every man whose heart moves him, you will receive an offering, a free will offering from the people. And this contribution that you shall receive is gold and silver and bronze. And then later on he says, exactly as I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle, you shall make it. So Moses is up on the mountain for the beginning of these 40 days and 40 nights. And the first thing that God tells him is, when you go back down, you're going to take an offering and you're going to use that to build the tabernacle. Now, where do the people get this gold and silver and bronze? From the Egyptians. Remember when God redeemed Israel, God said, you're not going to leave with nothing. You're going to plunder the Egyptians, but not from your own might, but from my might. And so by the end of the plagues, Egypt was so discouraged, so ready for the Israelites to leave, that they were giving the Israelites their gold, their silver, their bronze. Just take it, just take it and go. No, this shows the grace of our God. God's grace extends beyond just our redemption but a lavishing, pouring out of gifts. And then we're told that Moses is going to give the Israelites the opportunity to take what had been given to them and give it back to God. Because this wasn't Israel's gold and silver and bronze to begin with. It was God's that he had given them so that they could have the joy of giving back to him to display God's holiness. Now we come to Exodus 32. When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, 40 days, that was a delay to them. Uh, the people gathered themselves to Aaron and said to him, Up, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, this man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what's become of him. So Aaron said to them, 
Take off the rings of gold that are in your ears, that are in the ears of your wives, your sons, your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people took off the rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graven tool and made a golden calf. And they said, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. It took only 40 days for Israel to abandon the God who had saved them. So the irony here is that God had given them all this abundance, all this blessing, and they were supposed to turn around and give it back to God for the building of the tabernacle. But they're freely given it, freely given of their blessing to a false God. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it, and Aaron made a proclamation and said, Tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. And they rose up early the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and rose up to play. This is a true story. This is recorded in the inspired words of Scripture in the book of Exodus for our benefit, for us to learn from. There are so, so many lessons we can learn from this, but I... Maybe the chief lesson or the one that I want to focus on today is for us not to follow their example. Yeah, there, there, I was remember there's been slogans throughout the, through the years. Be a Daniel. Be a David. Uh, but don't do like the Israelites did. Uh, Maybe I'll print that into a new wristband and copyright it. Don't do as the Israelites did. But kind of joking aside, this, the stories to given to us that we might not sin as they did, that we might see the hideousness of sin and do our very best to avoid it at all costs. The Zoom just died. Bill. Uh, anyway, the Apostle Paul gives us the interpretation so that we don't even have to try and figure out what the interpretation of the scripture is. Uh, if you want to, turn to 1 Corinthians. It's 1 Corinthians 10, beginning at verse 1. And it says this, For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea, And all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and all ate the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. So we can look right here and don't have to question it, that Paul has given us an example, a wonderful example of a Christ-centered reading of the Old Testament. Now, Paul goes on, nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased. No kidding. For they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now, these things took place as examples for us. Paul's telling us right here that we might not desire evil 
as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were, as it is written. And here's the quote from Exodus 32 that we just read. The people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. So you see, this story of the golden calf is given to us that we may not sin as they sinned. It's not enough to look at that story and say, oh, bad Israelites, they sinned. Don't do that. We need to understand the tendencies in our own hearts to actually do as they did and to flee from that. If we stand aloof and just go, oh boy, the Israelites turn into sin again, then we're really not likely to see the lesson we're meant to see. But when we see the Israelites and their sin and say to ourselves, that same sin is probably lurking in my heart as well, we're more likely to learn from their example. The Puritans, I'm I'm a big fan of the Puritans. Uh, I just love them, love reading them, their prayers, their books. The the Puritans were, were masters at exposing the sinfulness of the human heart. Uh, and they wrote about sinfulness quite a bit. I just want to give you a, a few book titles so that you understand. There was a book called Sin, the Greatest Evil by Samuel Bolton. The Mischief of Sin by Thomas Watson. The Exceeding Sinfulness of Sin by Jeremiah Burroughs. So you, you think, I mean, they hammered this. They were masters at exposing the true character of sin in our hearts. And God wants us to understand the true nature of sin. So that, as Paul just said, so that we might not desire evil as they did. You know, we tend to speak, I mean, not us here, but our culture, we tend to speak of sin in weak words, in euphemisms. I goofed. I exercised poor judgment. Here's one. I had a lapse in behavior. Or I was born this way. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, we're born this way. I may have done something inappropriate. Or here's the one that you hear a lot. If I have offended anyone, I apologize. We do everything to avoid calling it sin. But the Bible uses strong words, almost offensive words, sin, transgression, evil, iniquity. So I want us to explore in this text the anatomy of sin. And I've I've got a few points that I want us to just look through. And the first one is that sin disobeys the word of God. I mean, this the this is most obvious in in a definition of sin that uh, comes from the uh, both the Westminster Catechism and uh, the Baptist Catechism. Sin is any want of conformity to 
or transgression of the law of God. You know, the question is asked, what is sin? And John 3, 4 states it quite simply. Sin is lawlessness. So sin disobeys the law of God. Have you ever stopped to think about more than just the worship of the golden calf as you read through this of how many of God's commandments were actually broken during this event? Well, they broke the first commandment, which says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. Because they stood up and said to Aaron, Up! Make us gods who shall go before us. Well, check off violating commandment number one. They broke the second commandment. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above, on earth beneath, or in the water underneath the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. And yet Aaron fashioned the gold with a graven tool and made a golden calf. And then they, but they thought in their own minds, they're worshiping the Lord because Aaron said tomorrow we will have a feast to the Lord. Check. Violation of commandment number two. Now, in your Bible, let me explain something. When you see the word Lord in those small capital letters, that is a way of indicating that this, it's a translation of the covenant name of God. Yahweh. Jehovah. And so Aaron said, tomorrow we are going to worship our covenant God, Yahweh, pointing to the golden calf. But no matter their intentions, they were violating the second commandment. This is an important lesson for us. Just because we think we are directing our worship to the true God does not mean that he receives it as true worship. Sincerity is not the measure of truth here. They may have thought, well, we're just worshiping Yahweh in such a new and wonderful way that we have devised for ourselves. But it was, in fact, a violation of the first and second commandments. They also broke the third commandment. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. Well, how did they do that? Exodus verse four, 32 verse 4 said, They said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. Oh, really? How did they violate the third commandment with this? They put the name of Yahweh on a golden calf. And Aaron, showing how easily he gave in, I mean, he agreed to or condoned this blasphemy. You see, back in verse 1, the people gathered themselves around Aaron. I mean, you could almost think about it. They ganged up on him. Aaron, please. Aaron, please. Aaron, please, 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 please. Aaron, please. Please do something. And so he did. They broke the first. They broke the second. They broke the third commandment. They very likely broke the seventh commandment. You shall not commit adultery. In Back in Corinthians 10.7, we stopped at the verse that says, The people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. 
But the very next verse talks about sexual immorality in the life of Israel. And then dot down in verse 25, it says, And when Moses saw that the people had broken loose. This is likely a reference to sexual sin. It's hard to imagine that they engaged in pagan worship to a pagan god without dancing and cavorting, as my grandmother would have said, like the pagans. That phrase, they rose up to play, let me tell you, that does not mean that they organized kickball teams or that they laid out and started playing pickleball. That's not what that means. They rose up to play is a euphemism that they were engaging in pagan sexual revelry. And their disobedience is all the more striking when you realize what was going on on Mount Sinai that very moment. It's, it's kind of like one of those movies where you have this action happening and they're going, and meanwhile, over here. You see, Moses is receiving the instructions for the tabernacle. You know, we've already gone through all this of the, and understand the sheer, the importance of the tabernacle and the sheer number of verses and chapters that are given to it. And remember that the tabernacle is, in essence, Mount Sinai living in their midst. If you look at Mount Sinai, it kind of was divided into three parts. You had the people at the bottom. They couldn't approach any closer than the base of the mountain. Uh, there were certain holy men that could go part way up the mountain. Then there was Moses, and only Moses could go and meet God face to face. You see that same division in the tabernacle. You have those who are outside in the courtyard. You have the priest who could enter into the holy place. And you have the high priest who could, once a year, enter into the holy of holies. So there was the presence of God on the mountain as the cloud and the smoke and the lightning. You have the glory cloud descending on the mercy seat in the tabernacle. You know, as you're traveling around, you can't take the mountain with you, but you can take a tent. So the presence of God dwelled in their midst, in the tabernacle. And just as God was, as just as Moses was receiving these instructions from God for building this holy abode, they're down at the foot of the mountain conducting themselves in the most unholy manner imaginable. And, and that's not all. Remember, on the mountain, Moses is going to receive instructions concerning the priesthood. And what example do we have of the man that is going to become the chief priest? God's telling Moses how they can worship him while the Israelites, led by their soon-to-be priest, are breaking every instruction related to worship. You could not have a sharper contrast between Moses and the instructions he's receiving and the reality of what is actually happening there at the foot of the mountain. You see, sin disobeys the word 
of God. Second, sin rejects the character of God. The situation with the golden calf is a repudiation of who God is as God. You know, God had said, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Not this cow. I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. He says, I do not look upon your treachery lightly. I am the invisible God. But they said, we want to see this invisible God over and over again. This golden calf episode shows not only their rejection of God's word, but their rejection of God himself. You see, sin is a repudiation of the law and the lawgiver. It says, I do not like the character of God. I do not like God as God. So I will fashion my own God. Every time we sin, it is an expression of our heart, whether or not we realize it, of saying, I do not want God to be God in my life. Or it could be, I do not like this God who dares to give me commands. That's what we're saying when we sin. You know, this, this golden calf was not their God, but they made him so. You think this cow delivered you from Egypt? That's not your God. But they were saying, in a sense, they were saying to God, we don't want this invisible God. We don't want this God who makes us wait at the foot of the mountain. We don't want this God of holiness. So, you see, they had not just rejected the commands of God. They had rejected God himself. And even if they were sincere in thinking they're worshiping Yahweh with this golden calf, it is idolatry nonetheless. One commentator said this, while it is true that love covers a multitude of sins, religious activity does not. Uh, and R.C. Sproul put it this way, the cow gave no law, it demanded no obedience, it had no wrath or justice or holiness to be feared. It was deaf dumb and impotent. But at least it could not intrude on their fun or call them to judgment. That was a religion designed by man, practiced by man, and ultimately useless for man. Isn't that a fitting description? Kind of a fitting description of so much as of what passes for religion or spirituality today. You know, we, we may pat ourselves on our backs and say, we don't have golden calves to worship. But what about desiring a God who no wrath or less holiness or no justice, no commands, 
Oh, oh, what about desiring a God who does not intrude upon our fun, whatever our fun is? A God that does not intrude upon our lives, does not intrude upon our dreams, does not intrude upon our wishes. Well, we just made a golden calf. In the beginning, God created man in his own image. And we've been returning the favor ever since. Sin rejects the word of God. Sin rejects the character of God. A third point here is that sin suppresses the truth of God. The New Testament understanding of this episode really paints a depressing, a sad picture of the exceeding sinfulness of sin. Suppressing what they ought to have known. In in Stephen's speech, before he was martyred, he recounted time and time again how the Israelites rebelled against God. This is out of Acts 7, uh, just for reference, Acts 7, beginning around verse 39. Our fathers refused to obey him, but thrust him aside, and in their hearts they turned to Egypt, saying to Aaron... Make for us gods who will go before us. As for this Moses who led us out from the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. And they made a calf in those days and offered a sacrifice to the idol and were rejoicing in the work of their hands. We invest so much of ourselves into our gods that we cannot bear to see them cast down. How do you know if something is an idol in your life? Well, ask yourself this question. How would I feel if this was cast down? How would I feel if I were to all of a sudden lose it? Our idols never, never, never last. Idols let us down. And idolatry in our hearts is revealed when our idols get taken away. They rejoiced at the work of their hands. We made this. We did this. I did this. Did you know that there is a behavior called the Ikea effect? I didn't until I started studying this. That is when you can't throw away something because you made it yourself. It's it's a cognitive distortion because you place a dish of disproportionately high value on something that you partially created. Honey, can we get rid of this old bookcase? I put that together with blood, sweat, and an Allen wrench. I have nothing but instructions in Swedish and pictures, and I put it together. We cling to it even after it has long outlived its usefulness. Most of the time I can't figure out what the useful And and here here we have the ultimate in the IKEA effect. They rejoiced in the work of their hands. Look at this. 
The God we can't see is a God we can't control. The God we can't see is a God we didn't make. That we didn't fashion. That doesn't have a beginning or an end. But here in this golden calf, there is a God we can see. We made that. And in doing that, they exchanged the truth of God for a lie. That's the argument out of Romans 1. They exchanged the glory of God for the suppressed glory of a cold, hard, metallic idol. Isn't it always our temptation to live by sight instead of by faith? Think about it. You know, as we, as we, as I just pointed out here, why does the text even say, why does it repeat in Acts, this Moses, we do not know what has become of him? I mean, is it like, come on, Moses, come on, we've been here all day. We're not waiting another minute. But I, I was kind of trying to figure this. How many of the Israelites probably actually knew Moses? If there were two million of them, how many of them actually knew Moses? I would think that most of these people didn't know Moses. And how many of them had never seen him at more than a far distance? Now, you, you think about this. It's when we go to a football game or a basketball game, we're sitting, and I, you know, I'm sitting pretty high up. I can barely see the little people running around, but at least I've got a jumbotron. So the cameras can zoom in on the action. The Israelites did not have a jumbotron. So Moses is way up there, and all I see is this little bitty speck. You know? That golden calf is nice and shiny and looking pretty attractive to me right now. We can't see God. We can't even see our leader. But this golden calf, we can see. It has value because we can see it and touch it. We can bow down to it. We can sacrifice to it. It took the skill of our hands to craft it. But this Moses, what's become of him? You see what's going on here? We've got, we've worked our way through Exodus and in chapters 25 through 31, we have seen an emphasis on true worship contrasted here with the false, idolatrous, truth suppressed, truth suppressing worship that we see here. You see, they were not in the position or the posture that they should be. Instead of receiving from the Lord, they're issuing commands. Instead of listening to God, they're speaking. Instead of waiting for God to come down, they're going up. You know, up. Make us gods. I think it's always this way with the human heart. We think we need to get up to God. We need to find out what God is doing. But the direction of the Christian faith is that God comes down to us. So they had suppressed the truth of God. Fourth is that sin squanders the blessings of God. 
they should have been enjoying the fruit of their covenant relationship with the Lord their God. Back in Exodus 24, we talked about this. If you think about it, though, the blood had hardly dried on the covenant agreement with God before the people were violating their covenant obligations. Exodus 24, verse 3 says this. Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the rules. And all the people answered with one voice and said, All the words of the Lord that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And then it repeats again in verse 7. He took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people. And they said, All that the Lord has spoken, we will do, and we will be obedient. They had signed on the dotted line, Yes and Amen, to all of these commandments. We are part of the covenant. God is our God and we are his people. And the blood had barely dried when they began to do things their own way. However bad you think your sin is, I hate to tell you this, but it's probably worse than that. You know, twice twice in the book of Exodus, we see God's people eating and drinking in celebration together. The first time we find this in Exodus 24, 11. And he did not lay his hand on the chief men of the people of Israel. They beheld God and ate and drank. This was a great covenant ceremony of covenant renewal. God's people were eating and drinking. And now here in Exodus 32, 6, we have the second occasion. And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. How quickly, how fast they have fallen. It's, it's like having an affair on your honeymoon. I guess is one way to look at it. I mean, we would shake our, if we heard something like that, we'd shake our heads and go, how could anybody be so foolish? And then we have to pause and examine our own hearts. I mean, how often may you have said, God, on a Sunday, God, yes, I love you. Yes, Lord, yes. And the next day, we eat and drink and rise up to play. As you read through the Old Testament, you will notice that the Israel, Israelites repeat the same pattern time and time again. In the opening chapters of the Bible, there was a covenant with Adam. He fell. There was a covenant with Noah in Genesis 8. Drunken and nakedness by Noah in Genesis 9. Covenant with Abraham in Genesis 15. He has a relationship with Hagar in Genesis 16. We look through this and we want to say, stop being so dumb. Until we realize that we can be just as dumb. I've heard this profound insight. It may have been from Greg. I don't remember. Sin makes you stupid. You know, of course, 
we can see it much more clearly in other people than in ourselves. I mean, we look at somebody and go, why did you do that and throw your ministry away? Why did you do that and throw your marriage away? All for just a few fleeting moments of pleasure, a few days of pleasure. It seems so clear in other people. But sometimes I think it can be cloudy in our own lives. So we're given the example of the golden calf so that we can shudder at their folly and not pursue what they pursued. Sin squanders the blessings of God. The last point I want to make here is that sin squanders the goodness or sin forgets the goodness of God. There's one more passage to look at. And this is Psalm 106. Psalm 106 is recounting the deeds of the Lord and tragically the sins of the people. Verse 1 of this psalm says, O give thanks to the Lord, for He is good, for His steadfast love endures forever. Who can utter the mighty deeds of the Lord? Who can declare all His praise? That's wonderful. Until we get to verse 6. But we and our fathers have sinned. We have committed iniquity. We have done wickedness. Our fathers, when they were in Egypt, did not consider your wondrous works. They did not remember the abundance of your steadfast love, but rebelled by the sea at the Red Sea. Yet he saved them for his name's sake, that he might make known his mighty power. He rebuked the Red Sea and it became dry. He led them through the deep as though a desert. So he saved them from the hand of the foe and redeemed them from the power of the enemy. And the waters covered their adversaries, and not one of them was left. They believed, then they believed his words, they sang his praise. Amazing, isn't it? But then on just a little bit lower down in verse 13. But they soon forgot his works. They did not wait for his counsel. And in verse 21, they forgot God, their Savior, who had done great things in Egypt. And that's after, that's after verse 19 that said, they made a calf in Horab and worshipped a metal image. They exchanged the glory of God for the image of an ox that eats grass. Why did they do that? Because they forgot the God, their Savior, who had done great things in Egypt. They forgot that the gold literally in their ears and on their fingers came from God. That the spoils came from Egypt. That God had given them that gold only months before. And now they're using that gold to the service of idolatry. Out of Egypt only a few months and they want to run back, if not physically, spiritually. Do you think that we are that much different from the Israelites? I think we're 
much more like them than we would care to admit. I would argue that we disobey, that we reject, that we squander, that we forget the goodness of God. And so I'm praying that this message that the Lord would open my eyes, our eyes, to see our own sin, to see the heinousness of sin, to see the ugliness of sin, the depravity of sin, to see the exceeding forgetfulness of sin in our own lives. As I said at the beginning, this, this problem of idolatry is not one that we leave behind when we become Christians. The Apostle Paul made it abundantly clear that we face this temptation of idolatry even as Christians and must flee from it. I mean, I'm sure in my own life there's been wonderful moments when my love for the Lord was so abounding and my trust in Him was so firm. And I would say, Lord, I'm committed to you now more than ever before. And I set my face like flint to walk before the Lord, to love Him and serve Him with all of my heart. And I mean it. And then I come face to face with idolatry in my own heart. You maybe, you, maybe you find yourself seeking security. In something or someone other than God. Maybe you find yourself seeking satisfaction. In something or some deed or someone. Other than God. Maybe you find yourself seeking seeking for significance. In some work. Other than God. And yes. Like me. Maybe you find yourself. Guilty of idolatry. At least God is merciful. And he reveals that to us. You know, this is, this is one of the turning points in the book of Exodus. This, this betrayal of Yahweh by his covenant people. What will become of Israel? Will anybody intercede for them? Can atonement be made for this, for this grievous sin? Would the entire nation be destroyed like the flood in Noah's day? You see, this, this wasn't just some grumbling or complaining. This was a nationwide insurrection and rebellion against God. And yet, you know the story. By the end of the story, Mercifully, wonderfully, this is not the end of God's people. Nor does sin need to be the end of us. Somebody may have sinned against you. You may have sinned against somebody or sinned just against God. That sin does not define you and me. 1 Corinthians 10 reminds us to flee from sin. And when you flee from something, you run from something, but you also run towards something. You run toward God. This story could be painted 
as the story of great sin. But I like to look at it as the story of two animals. Which one will prove to be stronger? This great golden calf of Egypt or the slain Lamb of God? You know the answer to that. The Lamb of God who was slain is indeed more powerful than all the idols of Egypt. The Lamb of God who was slain is more powerful than our sin to forgive us, to free us from the debt of sin, from the penalty of sin, from the power of sin. For us, there is only one who we should bow before. He's not a bull. He's a lamb. Let's pray. Father, we seek your mercy. Show us your mercy by showing us our sin. Lord, as difficult as it may be for us to receive, but knowing it's for our good. Give us eyes to see our sin, but also help us to see the one who has forgiven us, who has freed us from the penalty of sin. We bow before the Lamb of God that was slain for our sin. Thank you, Father, for your word that reaches down into the heart. Thank you for this great love that you show to us every day. Amen.